and welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics recording from Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong, a graduate school student majoring in applied economics. Here is Elaine. Hey. Today on our show, we invited our old friend Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Professor Lyndon Robinson. Hello there. Professor Lyndon Robinson is a professor of agricultural and resource economics at Michigan State University. He is a well-renowned expert in social capital. His pioneering research focuses on the role of social capital on establishing the terms and level of trade. His most recent publications focus on social capital motives and distinction between relational goods and commodities. Last episode, we talked about machine learning and behavioral economics to see how technology provides us with the luxury of efficiency. But today, we will talk about how social capital impacts our lives. So, Professor Robinson, could you first explain what is the social capital? Well, uh, I think Adam Smith may have identified it long before we started talking about it. It was he titled the first chapter of his book on moral sentiments called "Sympathy," and because the word empathy hadn't been invented for him, sympathy included、uh, the ability to vicariously sense the well-being in others. So when we started studying social capital. We basically applied his his idea of sympathy as our definition of social capital. So our first definition that we published in in the is social capital really capital paper. We called social capital sympathy. What got you interested in、uh, thinking about these issues generally? Well, that's a long story, but I was on sabbatical leave in 1984, 1985. And I had some time on my hand because I was、um, particularly on Sunday, and I wanted to write a book about how economics can be useful for people of my faith. And so I said I will use economics to explain this、um, this world of faith. And as I started studying about it, I couldn't reconcile. The underlying selfishness of preference assumption, with the fundamental concepts of caring for others and being sensitive to their needs, and that created a bit of a、um, dilemma for me because I realized that I didn't behave like the people described in my graduate econ textbooks, and that sent me on、um, an effort to try and rationalize. What I thought I behaved like versus the world described in economic textbooks. That's that's interesting because it's a it's an interesting approach. And I've I've talked to some people who are hardcore neoclassical economists. I, I in fact one of my favorite professors、uh, when when I was an undergraduate taught me. And I, I brought this idea up to him. You know, I don't I don't actually find myself always behaving like these models. I I don't think like this. I remember his response was repent,、um, <laughs> but、uh, you know there are some who who take this and try and jam those sorts of of desires into the neoclassical model, right? As as part of this this sort of rational selfish piece, I'm going to be doing this because it benefits me in some way directly. Is that I mean, how does your approach differ? Well, 
that's an that's an interesting question because I think we can distinguish between selfishness, which has to do with self and things that impact me directly, and self-interest, which is benefits that I see uh, when people that I care about are made better off or when I act consistently with my ideal self. So I don't find I do accept the the um, the paradigm that we maximize our self-interest, but because social capital internalizes the well-being of others, in that function in, is included the well-being of others, and on occasion acting to benefit others and promote their welfare promotes mine as well. As we know, um, capital. And it exists in our life, and but that's concrete. So, what's the difference between the social capital and the real capital? So, social capital, I I, I think is real capital, um, and and one of the characteristics of capital is that it produces something, uh, mostly、uh, in combination with other goods that have value. So, if we think of Man-made capital or human capital that produces often physical goods or commodities that satisfy、um, physical needs for transportation, housing, and so on. When we think of social capital, we think of capital that produces some goods,、uh, call them social-emotional goods or relational goods, and these goods、uh, are often produced、uh, with other resources. But they satisfy different needs. So, while commodity production satisfies physical needs,、um, the goods produced by social capital satisfy social emotional needs for such things as belonging, validation, knowing、uh, those kind of needs. And those needs are just as valid, as important as those satisfied by. Other kinds of other forms of capital.、Mm. And、uh, as an economist, I just wonder how would you measure or what's the metrics for those、um, good needs that、uh, you're? How do you quantify quantify those? So that was always a, a question that came up, was that we were talking about some kind of capital that was not directly observable. And goods that you couldn't hold or measure away. And having spent my much of my early career <clears throat> measuring risk and risk attitudes, the approach that in risk was we set up some standard, which was say a risk-free choice setting, and then compared the behavior、uh, when we introduced some variation, some uncertainty. So that was the same approach that we took with our efforts to study social capital. We began with an arm's length relationship between strangers, and then compared that to behavior when people had relationships of sympathy, and observed how the terms and level of trade changed. And so, just like we would measure、uh, insurance premiums in risk to infer risk attitudes, we would measure. Um, changes in terms of level of trade、uh, when when social capital rich partners were exchanging as some measure of the relationship. So, so what sort of evidence have you found then for、uh, for this impact of the of the social relationship? Well, when we began, we said, 
let's begin with the industry most likely to confirm the uh, neoclassical model or reject the social capital model, which was the behavior of loan officers because you're trading a standardized good, you have lots of regulations and so on. Mm. And so we, we said, do, do the likelihood of a loan approval change when I change the relationship. <laughs> and what we found was that for um, <clears throat> loan applications that were sort of in the middle, they weren't good or weren't, weren't terrific or weren't awfully bad, you could change the likelihood of a loan approval by as much as 50%. Then we went on to other things with a lot of uh, cooperators to measure the effect on land values and across several states and and, and lots of other um, uh, environments. We would find that the uh, when people were selling to a, to a family member, they discounted the land value by as much as 8%. If, if, if there was a negative relationship, they would add a premium, which made transactions unlikely. And the end result was that at least half the transactions were between friends and family, partly because the terms and level of trade facilitated their transaction. And of course, since then, we've done it in a number of in, at different settings. But um, I think the evidence is compelling that relationships of sympathy do indeed alter the terms and level of trade. Let me ask you this, just, just if you've given thought to this, if, if I am willing to sell my land for a lot less to somebody I know than I am to a, a perfect stranger, or, or um, I believe you also looked at, at bad neighbors, <laughs> people who I might be angry with, I, yes. does that mean we're adding, we add value to the economy when we're, when we're carrying out transactions with people we we know and care about rather than people we don't? If in this exchange between friends, we're exchanging something besides the commodity, namely land or money, as sufficient to make me indifferent between selling at the market price versus a reduced commodity price, then we are exchanging some other types of goods. And we've labeled these relational goods more, more, most recently, such that I am just as well off selling at a lower market price and benefiting by the exchange of relational goods. And the implications of that are really quite interesting. Uh, if I were to create an analogy, it might be, uh, it would be like purchasing a plane ticket with uh, accumulated um, frequent flyer miles and money. In this case, we're exchanging um, money or a commodity and relational goods in different combinations. So what I, th what I think is the perhaps one of the, the important considerations is when we find predictably irrational exchanges, is the irrationality, are we really in fact rational, but we're just not accounting for a missing variable, namely these relational goods. I think it's fairly easy to understand uh, when people interact with people, the social capital or so-called relationship could play a big part. Um, but then how do you think, 
how important is social capital uh, in a corporate setting when everything is standardized? Well, first of all, I would I, I would wonder if even in a corporate setting, if everything is standardized. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. So. <laughs> As long there's a couple of things that that are going on. One is um, there when people have a relationship, they are exchanging uh, some type of goods besides a commodity. And I think at least a number of studies that I've seen say that the salary or the commodity exchanges associated with one's employment are rarely the most important part of their satisfaction in the um, in their employment. But, but you do raise one important question. For example, when borrowers and lenders were known to each other and the circle of people affected by the exchanges, they may have behaved differently than when you, to, to use the word slice and dice, uh, loans and sell them without people being aware of each other uh, if you get people behaving more like they're trading a commodities than if they're accounting for changes in the well-being of others. I think that's an, an interesting topic. But uh, lots of work has uh, shown that when we own something, including a, a, a position in the market, we sometimes treat it as something other than a commodity. And we refer to this uh, change in value as an attachment value. So one example would be if I if I have a baseball, it's just a baseball, but if it's hit by a famous baseball player and he signs it, even though physically it hasn't changed, the value of it has changed because you've embedded some of these intangible social-emotional goods in it. So we have a lot of things in our environment, such as institutions, places, a number of things have attachment value. And so we don't view them the same as a commodity. It's an interesting point. And you bring up uh, corporate, you know, corporate environments and and uh, what, what happens in those settings. If I'm running a corporation, I'm, I'm on the board of a corporation. These are types of values that I'd like to be able to draw my employees into, right? I, I want them to have some social emotional attachment to the to the firm and to the group of people they work with because they'll they'll be willing to do a lot more than they would otherwise right so a, a wonderful study uh, and and wonderful um, i think area to explore is how we create attachment value for things and there's a long list of them um, of how this process works for example you may recall the movie uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks on a desert island. And, yes. and, and then you have a Wilson um, soccer ball that creates attachment value. Uh, this process of taking a commodity and, and making it into an attachment value good has a name. It's called decommodification. And we can do that by uh, anthropomorphizing the object, uh, making pets almost like humans or giving our cars names. We can uh, create uh, symbols such as flags and, and make commitments. Uh, anyway, 
I think there's a long list, maybe that's a topic for another day, but uh, there's a long list of how we go about uh, decommodifying commodities. And the advertising world is maybe uh, given a recent, uh, uh, taking people and trying this, uh, famous people and associating them with objects as part of this decommodification effort, because once it's no longer just a commodity, you change its value. Because when we calculate GDP, we just uh, use consumption, investment, those pretty concrete things uh, and productions to calculate that. Do you think we should include the social capital to like to calculate the output? Because a lot of people um, is pretty um, not has no confidence on the um, e economy on the past. The yeah, like like the pretty traditional economy. Do you think the social capital idea will save the economy, the traditional economy? <laughs> yeah. So so we have been uh, tracking for probably 40 years or more the distribution of household income in the United States along with some other variables, and we have two papers on the subject. Think for a moment of the distribution of commodities within a family. If this were really a close-knit family with social capital, the distribution would be fairly equal. In fact, we might even measure sort of some index of social capital within this family by the distribution and uh, willingness to help each other. So if you took that idea and then tried to formalize it in a mathematical model, you might come up with something that said, a reasonable index of social capital in in a in an organization or a state or a county or a town or something might be the distribution of household income. And so we've looked at that and tried to associate that with uh, indicators of social capital, um, such as households headed with a, a single uh, parent, uh, crime rates and other things. And we find some support for um, for the distribution of household income as sort of a, a macro index of uh, the social capital health within an organization. And and so I think if you looked at our society and said, "Gee, I wonder how our social capital or macro social capital is doing," maybe that's a reasonable place to start. Are we are we more equal in terms of commodity distribution and other opportunities now versus 10 years later? That seemed to be a favorite kind of political question. Are you better off now versus early? That's interesting. I mean, it's uh, somewhat intuitive to me, but it also, uh, when I was first thinking about this in terms of, of sort of aggregate levels, my, my immediate thought was, well, this suggests there's a whole part of the economy we're just not tracking and we're, we're missing. But it, it sounds like you, you suggest there's a way to sort of get at that part we're missing by looking at the part we can see and, uh, and figure, out, figure out whether whether those types of exchanges are taking place or not. Absolutely. Um, so if we have two people exchanging with, and they both have social capital, one is in a relatively stronger position, commodity position. They may vary the proportion of commodities and relational goods depending on their marginal utilities for relational goods and commodities. 
and produce exchanges that sort of come more nearly equal in terms of uh, the, the distribution of commodities and relational goods. On the other hand, if all two people are exchanging are commodities, then that sort of equalization of commodity distribution is not likely to happen. So um, when I exchange with my children and grandchildren, I seem to always get a lot more relational goods than I do commodities. <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> but the commodity distribution tends to make us more nearly equal. Right, right. Do you see the there's a trend that researchers or policymakers are are paying more t- attention to the uh, to social capital or uh, trying to utilize this knowledge to improve the overall like society? Well, we gave a Nobel Prize to Richard Thaler because <laughs> yeah, that's true. exactly that, <laughs> and, um, and I think in the previous uh, administration we also had a nudge unit. Yep. Um, and I think business uh, people selling products have a long time recognized that they're selling more than a commodity and tried to use that to improve their their business setting. Now, if if I could just wander just a little bit, um, the, we have sort of two things going on. We have a lot of attention being paid to behavioral economics, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, focuses on um, perhaps psychological biases and so on. Mm-hmm. And and I would put this um, social capital effort perhaps more in the social economic um, mm-hmm. realm. And the difference, and I think what this social capital effort is about, is trying to provide a paradigm that explains uh, exchanges, including relational goods and commodities, so that behavior that we sometimes label in behavioral economics as irrational isn't considered irrational at all, but simply a natural inference from uh, from the, the social capital paradigm. So I look forward to behavioral economics and social economics coming a little closer together and uh, um, benefiting from from the insights from both psychology and, and sociology and perhaps other social science disciplines. Mm, that's a great point. Do you see more grad students or students that uh, study um, behavior, uh, social economics, over the uh, other than like behavior economics? Well, I don't. I haven't taken a survey of graduate courses um, or even undergraduate courses. Um, that include behavioral economics and uh, social economics, because in in some ways these have been sort of included in the curriculum of psychology and sociology and and political uh, science and so on. But I but I think there's a, a really an important need in economic departments to sort of capture these insights in some kind of systematic approach which, uh, David, you would know more about this than, than I would, but I don't see it happen. I, I, I don't think it's happening yet. However, at our last annual Applied Agricultural Economics Association meeting, I was impressed with the increased number of papers and sessions on experimental economics and behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. I think those kind of studies are becoming 
much more important and in and, and occupying a, a bigger role at our meetings. But I don't think they made it all the way into the classroom yet. Yeah, probably probably not anywhere near what it should be. Um, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, so for our last part, so um, the last question will be how uh, do some advice or tips for us to use social capital to make our life or our society better? When you say that, I, I'm, I'm reflected. I, I remember this uh, statement that I've heard so, so many times that when I'm about to pass into another world, I don't often exclaim, gee, I wish I had spent more days in my office. What people usually regret is not having spent their time exchanging relational goods with others. So I think um, perhaps the first step is to recognize that every interpersonal exchange is, and, and I don't think you can avoid it, that we're exchanging some kind of um, relational good. We're either validating or devaluing, we're either expressing uh, caring or inclusion or not. And every time we leave one of these relations, uh, these exchanges, we're either better off or worse off. My friend Al Smith, who's, uh, who, who wrote, was a co-author on our relationship economics book, used to explain used to say that sympathy is so inexpensive to create and so beneficial when exchanged. Why are we so selfish uh, and reluctant to exchange it? And I think I, that's my worldview, that this is a good that we produce. I mean, it is produced in relationship, and it makes other kind of transactions better off. Now, Maybe it gets carried to a little bit of an extreme when I go into Walmart and there's a greeter standing at the door with no other goal in life but to say hello to me and have a nice day. <laughs> I think that kind of artificial exchange of relational goods may be not what we're after. But, but still, so in a, in a personal sphere, that's what I believe. And when you have... Uh, world leaders on uh, on a public stage, we have so many uh, indications that the outcomes of their negotiations, which affect nations, uh, depend on on their uh, their ability to uh, create social capital and exchange relational goods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I would say that we need to be aware of how important these. Uh, the social capital is in altering the terms and levels of trade, not just between individuals, between world leaders, between members of Congress. Uh, in I, I think our whole world uh, runs a little smoother when oiled with uh, uh, relational goods produced by social capital. Yeah, I think those so warm advice will bring us to a nice ending point. Thank you, Professor Lyndon Robinson, for sharing today. And thank you, Professor David Just. All right. <laughs> All right. Folks, here comes to the end. We are so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. Please share or contact us. You can always find more from our website, Twitter, or just simply email us, madhatecon at gmail.com. We're looking forward to 
hearing from you. Have a great one. Bye.